Welcome to On Death, a podcast to explore the oftentimes taboo topics of death, dying, and grief. We offer people a place to gather and listen to others around their experience with death and dying. We aim to encourage and support a healthy relationship with death and to move from a culture of mostly death denial to a community focused on living fully and alive. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Tom, and Tom is going to introduce our guest today. Thank you, Matthew. Today, we have Andrew Thomas on the show. Very excited to introduce Andrew. He is a longtime friend, uh, one of the deepest roommates I've ever had uh, back in the day, our days in San Francisco, deep expansion. And he's also, uh, he also found, was a co-founder of a tech startup called uh, Skybell. And he was, uh, he served as the CRO there, which is the chief revenue officer, also the chief realness officer, um, mm. as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And uh, what I love so much about Andrew is that he is a multi-dimensional character who not just is involved in entrepreneurship and, and startups, but also is uh, one of the most heart-centered people that I know. And uh, he comes to us today as a man who um, challenges himself on many levels. Um, and now over the last year of this pandemic has, has come up against new challenges um, and, and is here today to share some of his experience with us. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, buddy, thank you so much for the intro. Uh, that all means so much to me, and it's it's just a privilege to be here. I feel very grateful to be joining you too. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get right into it. Um, I, I and I will start with just a personal experience that I had this morning, and then lead that to a question, which is that I um, I noticed this bruise on my shoulder, and I remember I don't remember hitting my shoulder on anything or having any sort of injury in that area. And I started wondering what's causing this bruising. And then I felt myself go, Broom, some kind of cancer, I'm dying. And it was like that, like in like three seconds. And I was just wondering like how many times in the last like week or so, if you can count, have you <clears throat> considered like, this may be the beginning of my dying process. I mean, that example you just gave is a daily and sometimes hourly experience for, for me as somebody who suffers with OCD, which I think is gonna be one of the things we talk about today, but as someone who suffers with OCD, we have a, um, let's say just a heightened experience with the what if. OCD is a what if disorder. And it says, what if this bruise is actually the first symptom of some disease or diagnosis that is, is not favorable that I don't want? Um, it could mean that, that you know, I'm dying. And um, it doesn't take much. I'll tell you, uh, it does not take much to fuel OCD from going from something really small to something really big and just having absolute certainty that the worst thing is going to happen. So yeah, uh, that's, that's a, a, thankfully now a daily, uh, you know, experience and, and not as much of an hourly, but it took me a long time to get, to get here. Yeah. When did, when did you realize this was not just daily, but you said hourly, you know, what, was it a slow, Oh shit. Or, was it a moment of all of a sudden that you find yourself constantly in a, a spiraling? Yeah, I mean, just just to maybe baseline what what OCD is real quick, because some people are probably like, why why are we talking about OCD with a with a death podcast? Uh, isn't OCD like the the people who are just way too organized and particular about things and. Um, for those that don't know, OCD is, is a mental disorder. It is on the branch of anxiety disorders. 
And um, it has two parts. It has an obsession and a compulsion. And the obsession is not unique to people with OCD. The obsession is basically an unwanted thought. And we all have them. As humans, we have them all the time. The brain is just a thinking machine and we have these thoughts. And the problem with the person with OCD is that our amygdala, which is responsible for fight or flight response, uh, responds to those thoughts as if they are legitimate threats. So if the thought is, I'm like, what if I get COVID and die? For most people, they probably have thought that in the last year. Um, I can't imagine anyone hasn't at least had one thought of like, what if I got COVID? What if I died? What if my family died? You know, um, these are human thoughts. The, the, when you go into OCD, you go into that compulsive, I can't get out of that thought. And now the amygdala has fired a full fight or flight response for that thought. And now suddenly um, you're in the throes of an anxious episode. Um, and then that's when the compulsions come in. So the compulsions are like these rituals and these tools that OCD people, our OCD brain thinks are gonna get a safety from the obsession. They're gonna solve the problem. And so if it's, what if I get COVID and die? Well, then the, the compulsions is gonna be washing your hands 25 times, uh, taking 30 minute showers, um, avoiding people, going on WebMD for hours at a time. And so when it starts to like, keep you from your life, that's when you have OCD. And it's not a matter of like, the famous compulsion is checking or people do things repetitively. What's happening in that OCD person's brain is if I don't close this lock five times, something bad is going to happen. And it is the same visceral physiological response as if there was a mountain lion in your living room. Um, and so it is, it, it just to let people into my experience and, and those that share this disorder, it, it feels like terror. It's daily terror. And it, uh, it also feels like certain death. And so I, I was diagnosed in April of 2020. So a couple months into the pandemic and I have what's called contamination OCD. That's my theme. Contamination can be from germs, bacteria, viruses like COVID, or it could be from Lysol, which I spray all the time to keep me from dying from COVID. But there's also contaminants and carcinogens, and you don't want to be breathing Lysol a lot. So it's really a catch-22. It's anything that might harm me. And if you think about it, it's there's infinite possibilities. Um, but what happened was I was able to sort of function through that on my daily life until the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, I, I was able to funnel this obsession into prepping in January and February and was ahead of the curve and got all the toilet paper and all the masks and all the things. Um, and then in April, it just crushed me. Um, it was like no escape. And I had a couple of really, really rough days. So um, a couple of back to back days of just crying face down on the hardwood floor, just feeling trapped. I stopped eating and drinking. It was almost as if like I was not researching COVID, um, I was going to die. And I didn't, that included like not making dinner some nights, not making lunch, not drinking water. Um, and I had a probably, you know, 20 or so anxiety attacks in April um, and May, let's say. Um, so bad, in fact, that in June I was hospitalized with heart palpitations and heart problems, heart irregularities. So. Um, to answer your question, yeah, it, it really came on huge in the pandemic. And then now that I've been diagnosed, I've been able to track back that this actually I've had for a while and I was able to funnel it into something productive um, and which sounds really eloquent and graceful, but basically I had something to chase, you know, a sense of like, if I put all this into achieving something, somehow I'll be safer. That's what my soul was trying to do. Um, but yeah, I can trace it all the way back to eight years old. My first OCD memory is me as a boy. When my family went to sleep every night, I would look out the window of my bedroom where I could see the street. And I was uh, checking to make sure no burglars were going to come in the house and kill us. And it was an obsession. And what happens is you say, the second I put my head down on the pillow is the moment. What if that's the moment the burglar comes? And so that terror keeps you up. It keeps you going. And then I would also sneak downstairs as a little boy um, in the middle of the night and make sure that the door was locked. And then I would go to bed and I'd be like, oh, what if I was wrong? What if, what if 
the angle wasn't fully locked. I had to go check again. So you went on there and I'm eight, nine years old doing this for as many nights as I can remember. Um, and again, it's just tear. And then the human response of trying to get control over that tear, over that safety, the breach, the breach of safety, the loss of safety. Mm. Wow. Thanks. Thanks for that. Awesome. Yeah. Darrow definition. When Andrew, when you were a boy, were you already diagnosed with OCD or was this something that didn't, didn't have a lot of attention until April of 2020? Yeah, I was never formally diagnosed with OCD. Um, and it's interesting because I went to, you know, your typical psychiatrist in the late nineties, I guess, early zeros, early knots. Um, and he diagnosed me as, you know, uh, depression and, and maybe a little like ADD, you know, I was taking some of the same medications that you would give people with depression or ADD and, um, and it, it never felt good. I never felt good with that doctor. And, um, now it makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of people miss this diagnosis. And I think there's, you know, a couple million Americans every year that have this disorder. Uh, it is genetic. Um, and that's, I think why we also missed it is because I do have some of this in my family. And I think a lot of people just label these people as neurotic. You just label them as like, you know, I had an aunt that used to like over, like look over my mom's shoulder while she washed the strawberries to make sure she washed them properly. And when you have that, that's just like, don't be so neurotic, calm down, think something else. Um, it's easy to dismiss this disorder as just being neurotic. Um, and so, yeah, we, we missed it and I missed it. And again, I never, you know, I was always someone like, even when I traveled for business before COVID, I always had to have sandals. Like I cannot touch, you know, the hotel floor with my feet. Um, and I think most people could say like, oh, you know, that, that seems somewhat reasonable. The difference is that if I don't have my sandals, I won't sleep that night. Like it is tear, it is imminent death. Um, but I was always able to be like, Andrew, you're neurotic or Andrew, you know, you're, you're just particular, which is what I was told my entire life. So yeah, I missed it until the pandemic. And then the pandemic uh, on a daily basis, I would wake up. The first thought would be like a body check. Do I have any symptoms of COVID? Am I going to die of COVID? The last thing I would think about at night is like, I'm probably going to die of COVID. What if tomorrow I, I, I have it and I, or I have it now and tomorrow is the day that I die. Um, and then every, like almost every waking moment, you spend trying to prevent exposures to COVID or, or I did. Um, so my entire life became about COVID prevention and I no showed on a lot of client appointments. I had to stop working. Gratefully, the client was one of my friends and she supported me through this, but we agreed I had to, I had to quit. And if you think about that, if a mountain lion comes in your living room right now, how long are you gonna stay on this Zoom call? probably zero. You do not care. The amygdala is designed that way for survival. It's nonverbal. You cannot rationalize with it. So people would say, oh, why don't you just think something positive? Why don't you watch a movie while you're having an episode? And that's literally the equivalent of saying, hey, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you watch a video while the mountain lion's in your living room? Um, and so it's a state of panic and terror um, all the time. And uh, yeah, it, it ultimately broke me. I had a, I had a full physical, emotional, spiritual breakdown in May or in April. And if not for a couple of friends, like uh, teaching me that it was okay for me to be broken, helping me understand that I can't do this on my own, that I need to get help. Um, yeah, if not for them, you know, it, who knows? But um, April was the start of it. May and June or June, I left. I went to Montana and Utah to try to get to nature and that was really big. Um, and then I've been doing my therapy since. So what is nice is that there are treatments for OCD. You cannot cure it, but you can learn to manage it. And that process though is interesting for this conversation because OCD it has this fear that is irrational and it says, oh, I'm gonna get COVID and die. Just put simply, what if I get COVID and die? Well, you can't rationalize with it. You can't say, Andrew, the odds of you getting COVID is and dying is less than one half of 1%, which is true. But it, OCD will say there's still that chance. Um, and so the antidote to this is a process of 
of facing acceptance. We have to present, we present data to the OCD that forces it to accept the fact that it has no control. So what that looks like is the therapy for this is to imagine or expose yourself to your worst fear. Um, so with COVID, I, I used to write out a story, like a long elaborate three page story about how I would get COVID slowly, get, uh, get worse symptoms, go to the hospital, get put on a ventilator and die. And I would have to read this, like you read it until your anxiety attack goes down. So you basically more or less induce an anxiety attack to prove to your brain that the anxiety attack was not warranted because you survived. And over time, it starts to habituate, it starts to adjust. And it says, okay, this trigger is not worth my, the fight or flight response. Um, and so with COVID, it's tricky because normally if you have contamination OCD, you just go touch doorknobs and then you like touch your face and you don't wash your hands. Um, and that's enough to cause anxiety attacks. But the whole point is like exposure and then don't do the compulsion right? Don't try to solve the problem. Let the germs sit on your face. And then what you do is the mantra for that is not to say, Andrew, you won't get sick from the germs that you got from the doorknob. It's to say, how do you know that your face and your hands were clean to begin with? It's mm -hmm. to say, you can't predict the future. So my mantras are, I can't control how my body responds to COVID. How do I know that I don't already have COVID right now, or I didn't already have it? How do I know what's going to happen in the future? I don't. And so that actually works. Acceptance is the only thing that tells the amygdala and OCD fears to subside. And so you basically have, to, I had to do that for COVID. And then once I got over the COVID or I went from like a 10 out of 10 to like a 10 out of 10 to a five out of 10, um, I thought I had some relief. And then um, my obsessions around terminal illness came through and I started actually having physical symptoms that mirrored early signs of ALS in December. And that, that threw me into a, a very deep and dark spiral crying. I, I probably cried three quarters of every single day or night in December while I was waiting to get tested for ALS. And gratefully I don't have it, but that experience, um, you know, OCD says you could have it and therefore you do. And so for about two, three weeks, I basically lived with my brain and my physiology fully accepting that I had ALS and I had a year or two to live. Um, and it was, it was extremely traumatizing. And the therapy for that is to spend hours watching YouTube videos of people being diagnosed with ALS and then slowly, um, you know, having a, a degrading health and, and ultimately, you know, succumbing to the paralysis and the death. And, and that's your therapy. So you're in the experience of OCD that then you have your therapy, which is inducing anxiety attacks. And after that, it's, you know, I sometimes wonder how I got here, but um, it's, it's soul crushing work, but gratefully it hasn't crushed me yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me say, Andrew, first, I applaud your bravery and your courage to share this and listening to you. I, I really hope that this conversation, if someone else is struggling with, with these symptoms does go in, and get help and talks with someone and finds the right treatment and the right support. One of the things that you said about doing something like when you were a little kid, you would wake up, you would, you know, check the doorknob and then you go back to bed and you'd have to wake up and check the doorknob again. There are things in our lives that, that we can do, whether it's like that, or you used a word, um, not neuroses, but that was one of the words you used, but peculiar. Like some of us have these peculiar things that we do and we can decide, does that peculiar thing affect my life enough for me to change it? Maybe my peculiar thing is not liking the way the sound of people eating. I know a, a friend of mine that really drives that person nuts. So he could either decide to work on that 
or he can live with that and say, my life is, I can maneuver my life around not hearing people eat. You know, I can move my stuff in the other room. If my partner is eating loudly, I can ask her to not do it. But then the question is, well, when does that peculiar trait, whatever that stems from, then interfere with his life, right? And what you're saying is you were living in a way that it sounds like there wasn't so much interference up until January stockpile, February stockpile, April not leaving your house. Yeah. Right. So let's go back to April. What, what is it like in Andrew's house and where, when are you left with saying, okay, now this needs attention because this is yeah. too um, there's there's a lot in there. So yeah. So the, again, the difference between OCD usually and, and a peculiarity or a preference, uh, just a weird strong preference, is um, is is when something irrevocably bad will happen. Um, so uh, and then there's a, a series of compulsions that yeah will dictate your life. So um, there's a, w avoiding the chewing person, uh, like eating alone forever is what we call avoidance. And that is a type of compulsion and, and what exists in OCD exists with everybody else on a, on a smaller scale and in, in certain cir you know, circumstances. Um, so what I would say the, the difference of, of maybe that example and like what I experienced in April is that, um, it's the peril of imminent death. It is the motivating factor of everything that I do with OCD is to avoid imminent threat. Um, and you're sort of starting at a baseline of everything is trying to kill me. That's sort of how your day starts. Um, and so much of my day would be consumed trying to solve that problem. Um, and what that looks like is, you know, Tom and I were once roommates and I like to keep, keep it pretty, pretty tidy house. And um, I'm an organized, clean person, and um, and yes, I also have OCD, and I understand the irony there. But um, <laughs> I'm also a Virgo, so. Um, but anyway, my house was a mess. I hadn't cleaned in two or three weeks. Uh, my OCD was destructive for my relationship. My partner had moved out. I was left fully to my own devices. In the span of a month, again, multiple anxiety attacks. Um, and you say, well, how can you have OCD and like have a, a kitchen that hasn't been cleaned in three weeks? Because your brain says you cannot spend any time cleaning because cleaning is not solving the imminent threat. So it got to the point where like I was drinking out of Tupperware. I was, you know, drinking water, just using a, a mixing bowl as my drinking vessel because the rest of them were dirty. Um, it's, it's bad. Uh, I can share that... Um, trichotillomania is hair pulling and that's a common co-disorder with with OCD and I was pulling out my eyebrow hairs and if I didn't pull them out like I thought that things you know bad things were going to happen and and the difficulty is that this is not schizophrenia I'm not imagining things that are not real the problem is my amygdala is very much identifying a real thing it's just completely overreacting um, and it identifies with things that aren't threats. Like if I don't pull my hair, something bad is going to happen. But there were nights where like, I know that I'm pulling my hair and I would hold tweezers in my hands and say, do not pluck another hair. And I would try to go to bed and I could not, and I would have to pluck. And that went on for 30 minutes until I just broke down crying. Mm. And so what does it look like? It, it was suffering in silence and in darkness with the pandemic and isolation, no one there to help me no social time. It was just one daily descent into darkness that again, culminated with back-to-back -back days of four or five hour bouts of crying. And then um, I got help because I, I just ran out of resistance. It yeah. broke me. My soul tried to fight. My OCD tried to fight to keep me safe and it broke me. Yeah. And what I would say is regardless is if, if someone has OCD or they got peculiarities or if they're just a normal human being, what I'm learning is that, you know, and my assumption is that we all 
at some point in our childhood had a situation that broke safety. And we on some level as adults are just trying to get back to that safety. Or, you know, like in my case, I had a core trauma, um, a traumatic experience around the same time that my OCD symptoms started. And I'm learning by going through this journey and understanding fears and how it safety breaks and how we construct, you know, basically the tools to keep us safe, to get that safety back. Mine, were, mine was control. Mine was perfection, vigilance. If I'm perfect, if I'm vigilant, if I control everything, I will not be vulnerable. And so I hired those concepts when I was eight years old. And yes, they like may also have manifested as OCD and that delineation isn't super important to me. The bottom line is that we as people, as adults, I think are still operating with this belief that we can control our circumstances, that we can solve our vulnerability, that if we're per perfect enough, have enough money, sell the company, then we're somehow going to be safe or immortal. In my case, I actually dug up this like belief, my ego's belief that if I was perfect enough, I was somehow going to cheat death. Like I was going to get a cheat code mm -hmm. that like allowed me to go out the back door while everybody else continues to die. And all it is, is that I remember being seven or eight. And I remember viscerally feeling and acknowledging that I was going to die. And I remember, I remember feeling the void that I could not understand as an eight-year-old. And it terrified me. And then I realized everybody else in my family was going to die. And like all of this stuff, I can't give you like which one happened first, but they all happened around the same time. The trauma, that realization of, of death in the void and the uncertainty and then OCD starting yeah. and it's all clustered together. So to me, it doesn't matter. The same tools that we use for OCD are applicable to the irrational fears that we all have as humans. Yeah. You know, so I look at it as two people. I've got OCD, Andrew, and I've got normal soul shadow, Andrew, mm -hmm. operating in the world with irrational fears. So, yeah. Sorry, Tom. No, no, you're good. Um, yeah, I just, like, you've got a lot of, of wisdom in there. And, like, I just, I think that what, I, what I'm craving right now is that, like, I hear you. You are, you have an incredibly unique experience of facing death, imminent death constantly and this is something that not many humans will experience um throughout their life and then and then most of us will only experience when it's really on the doorstep or maybe where there's one like what you're talking about is you're kind of having a near-death experience like every single day yeah. every single moment of your life and ocd or not like that like you were saying like that's relatable to to, to people at some point in their life like they will have that, that experience, whether it's yeah. on their deathbed or whatever the case is. And so I, like, I, what I, what I'm craving is, is like, what, it, I mean, you, you're in, you're, you have a very, you're in a very special place right now to share some wisdom around that, what that's like to, to, to be facing imminent death. And, and I'm just, you know, what do you have for the, for people as they're coming to that place? What's, what's the wisdom? What's the, what's the nugget? What's the, where do we, what do we do with this feeling when it comes up? Yeah, that's a great question. That's great perspective. Um, Tom, I appreciate that. It's, I'm still walking this path and um, I'm a work in progress always. And especially on this particular journey or this portion of my life's journey, um, what I have learned so far is that, again, we hire control all the time to try to solve our problem of vulnerability. And, you know, you, we hear it all the time in the new age community, spiritual community of like, let go of control and surrender. And I thought I knew what surrender meant. And I had no idea until this year. Um, you know, I think I, like many people believe that surrender is this idea that I have control in the first place which is complete bullshit. We have zero control. Um, and, and then I also thought that surrender was this like tool to actually get what I wanted. It was like, if I surrender, then I'll get the things I want to manifest. And true surrender I'm learning is, is the acceptance that you have no control. And that doesn't mean you're going to get the things that you want at all. It means that the stage four could kill you. It means that the COVID could kill you. It means any number of things. 
And so what I've landed on is that there is no control. There is only resistance or acceptance. And it's easy to say that it's life's journey to live and embody that. And I'm on that path, but I tried to resist with every ounce of my human energy and it broke me. And I find myself in May of last year, sitting in a rubble of everything that I once thought to be true. And the only things that were true in that space was you can either accept or you can resist. And there's really no in between. So it's, it's hard though. You know, people are like, just accept things. Like, it's not that easy. You're going against decades of learned lessons of traumas, unresolved traumas. I mean, I have spent so much time in the past 12 months going into the shadow, going and finding that little boy, that little seven and eight year old who was hurt by an, you know, an acute trauma was uh, neglected to some degree, like had some emotional traumas, um, fears, fears, you know, and going into those fears and finding out, you know, who was I before this all happened? And then what happened? And as a little boy, like giving my little boy the opportunity to be seen and to be recognized and to be, to, to see him and acknowledge that he was hurt and he didn't get the support, the nurture he wanted or needed. Um, and also to like admire how far that little boy has gotten us. Like I've spent so much time self-hating over the control, over the vigilance, over being that person fear-based. But then I realized I had to do that in order to feel safe, in order to live my life to get here. So if I'm gonna hate me now, I'm like hating that little eight-year-old who tried the best he could and didn't know any better than to use control and perfection to try to feel safe. Mm. You know, and so this journey starts to unfold. You know, what I'm learning is like, we all want self-love and more self-love, whether we, you know, no matter how much we have, but if I'm going to go from self-hate, which certainly I've spent so much time there in my life to self-love, you don't go there by jumping this river. You have to wade through like self-acceptance and, and self-forgiveness. And in that process, you are now left with the room to, to love yourself genuinely. Um, and so I'm learning that as well too. Um, how that relates to people that, you know, are working through terminal illnesses or like, you know, ALS, like I'm not technically in that boat. I don't know exactly how that would feel, but as I've watched probably 40 or 50 videos of it on YouTube in the past two or three months resolving my terminal illness OCD. And it seems to be the same thing that a lot of these people reach a state of acceptance pretty quickly because it, all of the bullshit and the delusion of being able to get out of this diagnosis is gone. And what are you left with? Truth and acceptance. Um, so I feel like the sooner we can get there as humans before these terminal illnesses or before these bad things happen, the more you get to live your life. Because a lot of those people that have these diagnoses say that those are the best years of their lives, fully embodied and fully present, fully rooted in truth and fully accepting everything. Yeah. Yeah. I had this, um, this feeling of like, uh, whether it's, I mean, I had a huge breakdown, um, uh, about 10 years ago, right before my 30th birthday. And I, I was out of a divorce. I was fresh in a new city where I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have a career. I was going back to school. I didn't have any money. Um, and I was, I was really lonely and sad and, found myself grasping so hard. I, uh, I would reach out to a friend and they were like, oh, sorry, I'm busy. I'm, I'm just like, ah, like it just, it's so crushing, you know, at the, in that moment when I'm feeling so desperate and so, so vulnerable. And then there was this inflection point where, you know, I think like you and I share this, <laughs> I don't know how many people there are. And I, I'm glad I can laugh about this now, but um, you know, I have also been face down on my dining room floor, crying in a puddle, you know, being in a puddle of my own tears. And, uh, and the voice I got, which I call the voice of God, uh, said to me, now you understand. Mm. And it was this like, ah, okay. There's a point where the control, it, it, I imagine it just this it's like sand through the hands, you know, you're grasping and grasping. And then the, the final grain falls and you're like, what do I, that's it. 
you know, I'm, yeah. I'm done. I have to give up here. And that is, to me, like that's when, when the change happens. It's like, okay, that's acceptance is when there's no more threat of control left. Um, yeah. And, and what I heard in, in you is that at some point the control became worse than death itself. Yeah, that, that's a, a, a very intuitive, a very intuitive conclusion to draw and like is language I actually haven't used yet. So I appreciate that. that that's exactly what it feels like. Um, that like rock bottom is, is that place rock bottom, you know, like rock bottom is, is, is that hardwood, like when you don't even give yourself the benefit of, of crying in your own bed and you're just like, no, my soul is going to just cry face down on the hardwood floor. Um, yeah. That's when you got nothing left. Right. And, and you're totally right about the sand. It's just like, and I heard a similar voice of knowingness, God, you know, higher self. And yeah, it's like, okay, I'm out of control. And it's like, wait, I, I didn't even have it to begin with, you know? And like a new paradigm gets born in the depth of that breakdown. When you had like every ounce of that old paradigm or that old false belief is now gone. And like rationally, you know it to be true. It like integrates so strongly because there's, just like why well, I had I had zero to control to begin with, <laughs> and, and in that space there's no more other argument. You know, you're you're so out of energy with your ego and these stories that it doesn't fight it anymore. It's uh, you're done, and there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty in that level of breakdown. And um, but yeah, it does feel like that, dude. Where the control becomes, you know, you hire the control to keep you safe and you build a jail cell with it and it steals everything good in your life. It's, it steals life itself, you know? And one thing I've learned in, in Sedona is, is I look, uh, you know, I believed as a child that surrender was death. Like if I surrendered, if I surrendered to life, you know, and I let everything go and be easy and cool and whatever, um, that, that wasn't safe for me. That didn't feel safe. And so this idea of surrender is being death. Like if I surrendered to, to COVID in January and February, like it felt like imminent death. Like that is not an option for me. And now in Sedona, I'm spending time with trees and I'm watching them grow. And like, they're just trees. They've surrendered to their role as tree. They have surrendered to life itself. And I admire them for being alive. And I'm like, if that's what surrender is, if, if it's life for this tree, it must be life for me. You know, surrender is life. It is not death. And so this whole experience has had me confront those, those assumptions or those beliefs that I made as a boy to, to keep me feeling safe. Um, but you're right. The, the control ends up being worse than whatever the control was hired to prevent. And it also keeps you from not living, which is maybe the biggest crime of all, you know? And, and, and there's a lot of sadness with that, but there's also, again, the compassion. Like this came from somewhere. It wasn't my fault. I didn't just like wake up as an eight-year-old and be like, hey, I'm gonna ruin the rest of my life uh, by being controlling. You know, this was, this was, there was a sole purpose to this control. And now 30 years later, I can recognize that I've been frozen for 30 years, but now that I'm here, I get to unfreeze. Now I'm here, I get to, I get to look at things, how control defines my life. I get to look at how I try to still use control now to go back and reclaim the safety I lost. I get to now go back and visit with my eight-year-old and find out what he needs um, and give it to him, be the source of what he needs. So, you know, I've learned through this process that, um, you know, the, the, like for me, the shadow is, you, you know, the gold that we seek in life is buried in the well of our shadow, you know, and sometimes you have to go down into the darkness to get it, but boy, is the freedom good on the other side, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Hearing yeah. You say that, Andrew is reminding me of when people say that suffering is a gift or suffering is is grace and sometimes we hear those two together and our initial response is like what how can 
no way. And in the moment of suffering, you know, in the moment of Andrew on the floor crying with tweezers to say that this is a gift is probably a gnarly thing to even imagine saying. But now that you've hit that, that bottom, like, like Tom was said so beautifully in that moment uh, where the voice of God came down and spoke directly, you had, a, you had time to become picked back up and, and look at yourself and, I also want to say, I love that you are taking care of the eight-year-old boy and loving that eight-year-old boy in all of the choices that eight-year-old boy made going forward mm -hmm. instead of scolding it some more or scolding the whole process that you've you've had right the you know like beating yourself up because you have these thoughts but instead now that bottom has been struck and you've lifted yourself up hugged that little boy you know wrapped your arms around him gave him that hug that yeah, probably really wanted and needed and are continuing that hug now to right in this moment, hugging yourself in the, in the hard moments, in the, in the beautiful moments. And then the net comes back to looking at suffering as a real gift because you're now able to hug yourself and, and love that boy. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I, I feel like we all have this hurt little kid in us that wants to be seen and just wants to be nurtured and just wants to say, I, you know, I see you. I, I see what happened and I'm sorry and it's not your fault. And that starts that progression into honoring and loving this this little kid that we all we all love. Like we all know we all have that little kid in us. And then it somehow got taken from us with fear, you know, trauma, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I want to speak to, I appreciate you saying that. And that's certainly the, the idea of like being able to feel gratitude for this journey is something that is relatively new. Um, and, you know, Thomas had a front row seat to this journey. Um, it, it, has, it has really almost crushed me multiple times. Um, and I am now just starting to realize how far I've come. And to, I, I don't want to discredit though, like how suffering is, is awful. Suffering is heart crushing, soul crushing. There's no way to sugarcoat it. This year was nothing but feeling like I got dragged behind a car, you know, for a, for a year. And, and it's, it's, suffering will break you and you don't have the clarity. Like I did not believe that I was going to have gifts on the other side of this. I didn't foresee being able to like finally get to Sedona where I am now and like feel good again. Like the last week I've actually felt good with some friends that came into town. I've been able to enjoy some outdoor activities with them. And it, you, you have to sometimes walk the path without any guarantee that it's going to get any better and that's what I felt so viscerally. And I think that is that surrender piece of like, there's no guarantee that this is stopping. And it was COVID for months. And then I finally got over, got over that. I've got it down like from a 10 to a five. And then the terminal illness one comes in and almost crushes me. And then I get that one out of the way. And then now it's fixated on money in the stock market. And if, if my stocks go down, I, I will die, you know? And, and then it's the microwave. And the microwave radiation is going to kill me. So I can't go into a kitchen, you know, and it's relentless and continual. And then while that's happening, I'm still five out of 10 on COVID, you know, it's not like it's gone. And so, and then add the isolation, 
to not be able to do this with friends and get hugs and have people see you and bear witness is, has been the hardest thing I've ever endured, including the depression that I faced in my twenties. Um, yeah. And so I want people to hear this and know that it's really easy to sit on the backside of this journey and be like, Oh, there was gifts in the suffering, but the suffering is dark. And I feel like sometimes you just have to honor it. And, you know, some people have projected on me, like there's going to be a gift in this somewhere. Feel good while you're suffering. And it's like, no, fuck that. I feel like I've never felt worse in my soul in my life. And I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to own this experience. And by the grace of God or the universe or something, there was some energy inside of me that just didn't want to give up. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about it. There were many times in this journey I've thought about it. And it was just like, no, we're going to keep doing every fucking therapy until we get through this. But while not just like blindly bypassing with optimism, it's like mm-hmm. fully owning just how terrible this is. And we're just going to do it anyway. Yeah. And that is what's been giving me all of the gifts and the gifts were, I could not have predicted them. You know, I did not, I forgot about these traumas from my childhood until this OCD. So you're absolutely right. There are gifts here, but it has been very, very challenging. And, uh, but yeah, I'm grateful for the gifts. That's for sure. I think these gifts are ultimately going to set me free in the next period of my life. I'll still have OCD, but I'm going to have a much different orientation to living. Yes. Right. To living that that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm touched by that. That's like such a wonderful punctuation, you know, and uh, I heard in that last part, to anybody who's listening, who's going through something right now, I almost want to say, fuck the gift, you know, don't even like, don't, don't focus on that. Don't focus on it. Cause it's, I love what you said. It's not guaranteed. Yeah, it's not. And, and actually it's like, and it, it's that acceptance that you can't like, I could, none of us can walk anybody into that level of acceptance. It's something that has to, they have to find that last grain of sand. It's got to fall from their own hand. We can't pull it from their hand. We can't even do anything other than watch it fall and be there when they need, when they need us. Nailed it, buddy. Nailed it. um, Just, just to even say about, your story when when you were on the dining room floor and Andrew when you're by yourself and so many of us now by ourselves and a lot of even our guests that we've had have been talking about this period of a lot of aloneness to I'm hesitating to to give a practice, but it's been really helpful for me in these moments to look in the mirror. And in, in the in the beginning of all of our podcasts, we take a moment and and we we center together. <clears throat> so I'm just saying that because in these moments when I'm by myself and I can look in my eyes in the mirror because like you're both saying you're not going to get it from anywhere else and to look at yourself in the mirror and you can repeat out loud i see you i see you i see you and not just the visual you you know we're speaking from that place of our heart from our soul right i see you I see you, I see you, I see you. Mm. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And even just breathing in, into that can can be just a, a little bit of, of soul connection, soul medicine, soul love, soul soothing. Mm-hmm. That can really be helpful in these moments when when we are utterly alone. 
kind of I, I want us to just all do that right now can we do that <laughs> yeah you want to you want to look in the yeah in your, your looking in into my, our own things i try to avoid thing. looking into this, this yeah. thing <laughs> Damn. i'm gonna do it this time turn it on we'll do three of each one i love you uh, i see you i see you i see you i love you i love you i love you and hey look if you're at home too find a mirror find your reflection in your iphone and we'll, we'll do this little practice together just look at yourself look at your eyes look at your face and let's repeat i see you three times I see you. 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 And I love you. And I love you. I love you. I love you. And I love you. I love you. I see you and I love you. Yeah, you know, I, I love that practice. And I, I just want to add, in my experience, it's been very hard to just say I love you. It's always been a hard thing for me to just sort of like mantra that into existence. But now, in this process of like all this excavation, all this journeying into the self-acceptance piece, the self-forgiveness piece, um, now I really can feel myself saying I love you, you know. And I feel like what's really, what I connect to really with that practice is just even as simple as the first part, just saying, I see you. I'm going to bear witness to you or myself and allow myself to have the human experience. And, you know, I, I feel like in my experiences, when you, when you struggle and you suffer, a lot of people around you aren't going to see you because it hurts them too much to see you. And if they see you fully, they acknowledge that you're suffering and that makes them uncomfortable. So they say, hey, just think positive. Hey, you know, uh, God's got a plan. Um, there's going to be gifts. And what I love about the ICU is that there is, to Tom's point, there's nothing after it. It's just I see you, I see your humanity. And in this case, I see you suffering and it gives you the freedom to then move into wherever that goes, anger, sadness, self-love, self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, praise, look how far I've come or this thing really hurt me. And you know what? I'm sad and I'm mad and I'm scared. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the witnessing in the scene is the ability for you to go anywhere in the human experience. And I find that with suffering, a lot of people, including ourselves, we don't want to give ourselves, uh, I guess, the fullness of the human experience. And you, you know, you hear people say, well, I just wanna be positive. I'm just gonna stay in the moment. Um, and the little forms of bypass. And we're basically saying, I'm gonna reject fear. I'm gonna reject sadness. I'm gonna reject um, anger. But those are as organic emotions as joy and gratitude. And so I have found it helpful in this journey um, to be able to honor all of, all of the, all my humanness, yeah. um, the totality of the experience and the men's work and all the somatic work that we've done through the feeling body has helped me in this process. So thank God I found that work three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want people to know, and I think sometimes I take exception to people who say, hey, just think positive, you know, and, and I don't think that that's when people are seeing you. I think that's when people are trying to self-soothe themselves because they have no control over your suffering and they can't quite frankly do anything about it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people suffering from terminal illness, I imagine, feel that same way. You know, they also receive all these projections from other people. Um, and so if you can just even bear witness, I feel like that opens the door for the full human experience. And through that full human experience, you can then love yourself. Hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but Very much. I hope that came out sens sensibly. Completely. When to be an embodied human is to have feelings and to emote 
whether it's anger, fear, joy, or bliss. If we're angry, maybe we don't stay angry, right? But in a moment of anger, I'm angry. Yeah. In a moment of, of, of bliss, be in that bliss. And just like how we would sit with someone when they were dying and hold their hand. I see you. I see you. I see you. I love you. I love you. I love you. There's nothing that we can do to stop the person from dying. Yeah. I, I would yeah. love to go all the way back because we can maybe wrap this up now mm. to the cheat code, cheat death. Mm. <laughs> do you open it up, Andrew? Do you open up the cheat code? Um, do, do I open it up? Can you? It, you're the first one. We were. It slid on your desk. It's in your your email. What do we do? Do we look at it or is it delete? Do you delete it from your the, email? the cheat code from death? Yeah, you imagine right. It's right there. Yeah, I mean, I spent so much of my life wanting to get that cheat code and, and, you know, our egos, you know, they have weird statements and mine's like, if I can control everything and be, be perfect, you know, then I will um, have the cheat code to death, you know, selling the company is somehow a cheat code to get out of dying. And, um, you know, I, I, for a lot of my life, I wanted that cheat code and now it just, it, the allure is, is gone. You know, um, I am not resolved in my, my journey or my fear of death. That, that's my core fear. And in OCD, we have core fears and that's mine. And like, I still have more work to do. Um, you know, I believe in every, all the magic of what's next. I just want, don't want to die to get there. And the uncertainty of it triggers a lot of fear for me. Um, but no, I, I don't want it anymore. And, and quite frankly, I won't get it. So like, there's no point in even running that game anymore. It's like to Tom's point, like there's, there's, there's no point, like even my rational mind's like, this is stupid. I'm going to die. So like, stop seeking the cheat code. But that little boy needed the control and the perfection to feel safe. And so I'm hoping that by loving this little boy more, uh, continuing to allow him to, to unfreeze, uh, to feel safe um that together we're both going to live our lives and uh without that fear of of not knowing what's next or not having any control over it you know but again you know what's what i find so interesting about the ocd stories is there's fears and then there's acceptance mantras or acceptance practices that's all it is and then over here on the soul side it's the same thing so I'm kind of treating the OCD, but over here, I'm, I'm, I've been using those like nine platitudes of death. You know, like I accept that I'm in a vulnerable body. I accept that I'm going to die. I accept that I'm this much closer to now dying. Um, I accept that I won't know how. I accept that I won't have any control. You know, those practices are building that muscle of acceptance. And I feel like if I'm not gripping towards like trying to control everything to not die, my hands are now open to receive all of the beauty and wonderfulness and joy and heartbreak and all of the great, wonderful human experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and like, we're here. So like, let's live it instead of living to try not to die and <laughs> it's oversimplified and it's been my life struggle, but like, it could be as easy as that. Um, and that's yeah. what I, that's what I'm trusting on the other side of all of this control is freedom to, to live and express. And if you live and express, like how could you possibly be scared of dying? You know, when the time has come, mm -hmm. that's at least the new if then statement I'm, I'm going to believe. I love it. Yeah. You want to, you want to take us home with a, with a word of wisdom or a, a poem or anything like that you'd like to share? Um, I don't have a, a poem, um, but I'm always, I'm always good for some wisdom. Um, hey, Andrew, I, I, yes. I hate to interrupt people. I'm going to pause you for a second because I'm really curious all of those 
you were said you were you were writing letters at a certain point about how you were going to die from COVID. Yeah, 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 definitely. I I, I just want to say. I'm, I can't wait to hear what you do with, I just want to let everyone, I can't wait to hear what you do with those letters. Mm. Like, I think the ceremony that I hope that eventually you'll have by either burning them or offering them to the water mm-hmm. or, I, or, or however that goes, the, the death of those, um, I, I would love to maybe in the future, even have you back on for like a five minute update of like, this is where we're at or, or something like mm. that with, with those. So just want to plant that there. Um, so maybe we can even touch base sometime in the, in the future. Love and it. with that being said, <laughs> now you can take us out on, on however you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I'm still writing my letters. Now I have a money one where I go broke and I ultimately die. So these letters, we call them imaginal exposures because we're exposing ourselves, you know, on an imaginative basis. And I think that they're really applicable. Like, I wonder if, if you know, non-OCD people, I'm sure it'd be a great tool for them too, right? With the acceptance, because that's all you got, acceptance or resistance to all fears. So um, I guess that's a wisdom nugget. But um, when, what, when I was thinking about, about the wisdom, I, I feel compelled to want to speak to uh, or, or to share to people to remind them that they have, uh, they are the source of their truth. They are the source of their healing. And that everything that they want, whether it's to endure suffering or to create a life that they want, it is all inside of them. And it is not externally with, um, with the influencers and the gurus and all of these people selling manifestation and healing and all of this stuff that a great teacher, a gr- great coach, a great um, person is going to help you find that within yourself. And uh, for me, I have found that to be especially true uh, this, in this experience is just how much truth is inside of me and how much it was just uncovered uh, by all of these layers of fears and false beliefs of control and vigilance and perfection. And, you know, I, I connect to the people who are out there trying to solve their suffering and my second bit of advice, or maybe one B is, is embrace it, that we are stronger than we even know we, we are, and that it's scary, but I believe that there is a lot of healing that comes through the suffering. And sometimes the suffering is the way, the shadow is the way. And so I would encourage people to embrace that and give it a try and don't don't bypass it by trying to be like, oh, I'm supposed to be bright. Like all the people I see online, good vibes only, um, you know, no, like honor your humanity, honor yourself, honor your healing by embracing your sadness, by embracing your anger, by embracing the shadow. And again, I think all of the gifts of, of the things that we want are buried, are buried in our shadow and we, we just have to go down there and get them. So I would encourage everybody to, to embrace it, embrace the shadow, embrace the journey. Thank you so much, Andrew. Love the openness, the wisdom, the information. I love your vulnerability. I love your bravery, your courage. Uh, it's a real honor to have you here and to hear your story. And looking forward to seeing you evolve and grow and love and the next progression of Andrew as, as a, a lover, a healer, a warrior, a king, <laughs> and even the embodiment practice of what those um, pages will be offered to. I'd love to get an update in the future. Thank you so much yeah. for being here, Tom. Yeah, thank you. I just have one thing to say. I see you. See you. I see you. I see you. I see you too, brother. Thanks. Thank, thank you, guys. Real pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good one, guys. Mm-hmm.